Amen. <clears throat> All right, well, last week, if you remember, we started a brand new series uh, through the book of Jonah on Sunday mornings, and I would encourage you, if you weren't here last week, uh, you can find that sermon. If you'd like to catch up this week on our series, you can find it <clears throat> on our website or on our YouTube uh, channel, and it's all uh, there for you. But we are going to be spending several weeks going through the book of Jonah and learning about Jonah on Sunday mornings. And I'd like you to keep your place there in, jo- in the book of Jonah. That's obviously our text for this morning. But go with me just real quickly to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, and look, look down at verse number 39. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39. If you remember last week, we were in chapter 1, and we went through those four lessons there in regards to things to consider before uh, you run, right? Before you decide to quit on God, to quit on your family, to quit on whatever it is you're going to quit on, you ought to consider certain things. And we talked about the fact that you ought to consider where you're going, uh, not just where you're leaving. And we talked about the fact that you can run from God, but you cannot outrun God, and that God will do what He has to do, not to get back at you, but to get you back to Him. And we looked at those uh, ideas there from chapter 1. What we're going to do today is a little different, and this morning's going to be a very doctrinal type sermon, so I need you to kind of put on your thinking caps, you know, and and be able to, uh, you know, look at what the Bible teaches about these things. But I want you to notice in Matthew 12, in verse number 39, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 39, this is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, but he answered and said unto them, and this is Jesus speaking. If you have a Bible that is a red letter edition Bible, these words will be in red because these are the words that came out of the Lord Jesus Christ's mouth. He said this, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. He says, for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This morning I want to preach to you on the subject of the sign of the prophet Jonas. The sign of the prophet Jonas. Now you're there in Matthew 12. Turn over a few books to the book of John, John chapter 3. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John chapter 3. And let me just kind of say this. Jesus spoke about the fact that this story that we're studying, and if you remember last week, I'm not going to go into all the details. We talked about how people will look at the story of Jonah, and especially the fact that he was swallowed by a whale. They'll mock at the Word of God. And we talked about those things, and you can listen to that sermon uh, or review that sermon in regards to that. But Jesus, you know, looked at the story of Jonah, and he saw it as a real event that actually occurred. He believed it himself. And he, more than that, he said that that story would serve as a sign of himself. He said, you know, they're seeking for a sign. He says, no sign shall be given it, but the sign of the prophet Jonas, for his Jonas was three days and three nights. And he goes on and he talks about what was going to happen to Jesus, what he came to accomplish on this earth. He said that the prophet Jonas actually was a sign or a picture of those things. Now, let me just answer this real quickly because, you know, sometimes you, you make that statement or you make statements like that, and people have this question. They'll say, well, why, you know, Jonah was a backslidden uh, believer. You know, why would God use uh, a bad, you know, example as an example of the most righteous, you know, person who ever lived, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I just want you to notice from John chapter 3 that oftentimes when we're talking about the death of Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, that, you know, Jesus is represented, who's righteous and perfect, Jesus can be represented by something that is wrong or sinful. You say, what are you talking about? Look at John chapter 3 and verse 14. Notice what he says. And again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And we're not going to take the time because we got a, a lot of material to cover this morning, so we're not going to go back to the Old Testament story. But if you remember in the Old Testament, the children of Israel were uh, backbiting and rebelling against Moses, and God sent the serpents to, to, to punish them. And if you remember, Moses made a brazen serpent, and he lifted it up on a pole. And by the way, you know, if you see the, uh, the, the symbols that we use today for medicine, if you go to a pharmacy, you'll often see the symbol of a serpent on a pole. It comes from the Word of God. It comes from that story. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, because if you remember, when people were bitten by the serpents, all they had to do was look up 
to the serpent on the pole, and they would be healed. And Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. See, that serpent being lifted up on a pole that would bring salvation to the nation. Jesus said, that is a picture of me. I'm going to be lifted up on a cross, and those who will look and live, those who will look in faith to me can be saved. And you say, yeah, but a serpent in the Bible, that always represents, you know, the devil or Satan or sin. Why would Jesus be represented? in a negative fashion and here's what you know and with Jonas you got a backslidden preacher why would Jesus be represented and here's what you need to understand Jesus was the perfect son of God but on the cross the Bible says that he who knew no sin Jesus became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him see on that cross he embodied the sin and he took upon him the sin of the world which is why the serpent on the pole is a perfect illustration of him being lifted up which is why a backslidden preacher like Jonas is a uh, usable or acceptable illustration so I want to just answer that question by way of introduction but I also want to just answer another question real quickly go with me to the book of Jude At the end of the New Testament, if you start at the last book of the Bible, you have the book of Revelation, and right before the book of Revelation, you have the book of Jude. Jude, there's one chapter, and I want you to look down at verse number 3. Jude, verse 3. Notice what the Bible says. Here we have Jude, who's the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing this letter, and he says this. He says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you, of the common salvation. He said, It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Here Jude said, I wanted to write a letter to you about the common salvation. And he said, Where I've got to begin is I've got, he said, It's needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. Because today we're going to look at the doctrine of salvation from the book of Jonah. We're going to show the doctrinal lessons that we can learn from the story of Jonah. And as a preacher, you know, the, 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 the problem that I have with coming with a sermon like this is that many of you, you know, would just kind of think, oh, I already know all this, you know, I can just kind of, you know, put on my sunglasses and go to sleep, you know, and take a nap. Uh, but, you know, the Bible says that, that, and Jude said, that we must earnestly contend for the faith. And I don't know if you know this, you know, and if you don't know this, you got to go out soul winning with us every once in a while so you can learn this lesson. The doctrine of salvation is under attack today. There is many false religion and false teaching and false doctrine uh, that's being taught about salvation. And you say, is it important? You know, it's going to send people to hell. It's going to cause people to miss heaven if they don't understand. So look, Jude said that we must earnestly contend for the faith. You know, and, 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 you know, when we talk about these things, that uh, salvation is not of works and eternal security and what repentance really is, when we talk about these things, some of you may think, oh, I already know this, I don't, you know, but there was a time when you didn't know it, and there was a time when someone had to teach it to you, and someone had to explain it to you, and, you know, the beauty about a church like ours is that we always have new believers, we always have new people coming in, and they may or may not know some of these things, and it's good for us to be reminded, to be strengthened. You don't have to go there. Go, go back to Jonah chapter 1. But let me read to you out of Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He said, to write the same thing to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. So look, every once in a while we should just be reminded of the common salvation. We must earnestly contend for the faith. We must, you know, be rooted and grounded so that we're not uh, turned about with every wind of doctrine. So we're going to look at some symbolism this morning in regards to how Jonah represents the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's some doctrinal things we can learn about that from the story. Now go, go back to Jonah chapter 1, and let's kind of get, get some of the context. You know, how did we get to this point in the story? Because when we start in chapter 2, we have Jonah in the belly of a whale, right? How did we get there? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but let me just refresh this or review this for some of you. If you remember, the Lord told Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Jonah chapter 1, notice verse 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for the wickedness 
for their wickedness has come up before me. And we talked about it last week. I'm not going to spend time on it today. But we looked at Nineveh and that city and how it was a bloody city. It was a violent city. It was a city full of witchcraft and whoredoms is what the Bible says. And, of course, Jonah did not, chose, decided to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he literally went in the opposite direction as far as the developed trade routes would allow him to go in his time. Look at verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And, we know, and, and of course, in verse 4, the Lord sent a great wind and a mighty tempest after Jonah. Look at verse 4. But the Lord sent a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Notice verse 7. And they said everyone to his fellow... Come and let us cast lots, right? Because when the tempest came, the mariners, the sailors, they found out that the tempest was there because of Jonah. So they cast lots that we may know whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Look at verse 10. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So that's where we're at in the story, right? Jonah runs, God chases him, or God outruns him with a tempest there, and now he's getting ready to be thrown into the sea. Now I want you to notice several things, and uh, if you're taking notes this morning, I'd encourage you to take notes. You've got on the back of the course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes if you don't have a baby sitting on your lap or something like that. But I want you to notice three things that symbolize the death of our Lord Jesus Christ or the, uh, you know, atonement of our Lord Jesus Christ in the story of Jonas. Number one, we see the sacrifice of Christ. And we see how Jonah pictures the sacrifice of Christ. Notice verse 11 there. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 11. Then said they unto him. Notice what they said. Remember, they're in the midst of a storm. They're, they're, the, the, the ship is like to be broken. It's likely to be broken. They're likely to lose their lives. They've already thrown all the wares and all the merchandise off the ship. And they are in trouble. It doesn't look good for them. And they just found out that it's because of Jonah. And in verse 11, they said this, Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous, and he said unto them. Now notice what Jonah says. He says, take me up and cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. I want you to notice in the story that the sea, the waves, and the storm, this represents the wrath of God. This represents the chastisement of God, the judgment of God. And this isn't this exactly what God was doing? The punishment of God was coming upon Jonah. And these mariners were saying, you know, what shall we do? How are we going to fix this? What do we do? And Jonah says, look, there's one way to fix this. He says, if you cast me forth into the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you. He said, there's one way to remove the wrath of God upon our lives, and it's to sacrifice me. And the first picture we see in this story is that one had to be sacrificed to save the rest. Jonah had to be sacrificed. His life had to be sacrificed so that the lives of the others might be spared. Keep your place there in Jonah. Go to me in the book of John. John chapter number 11. In the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. When you get to John, do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. John chapter number 11. And when it comes to salvation... This is exactly what salvation is. That one had to be sacrificed to spare and to save and to forgive the rest. In John chapter 11, we have a story of a man named Caiaphas, who was a high priest at the time of the, uh, uh, of the ministry of Christ. And this is actually not a good guy. He's, not, he's playing for the wrong team. But he actually, the Bible tells us, prophesied. And this wrong man prophesied a right thing. Notice what he says in John 11 and verse 49. The Bible says this, And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, he said, Ye know nothing at all. They're all arguing about what to do with Jesus and what's going to happen with Jesus. Verse 50, he says, Nor consider that it is expedient for us. Notice what he says. That one man should die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he. So he makes this statement. And he's talking about 
physically, the you know, he thinks that the Romans are going to come and destroy the city because Jesus is creating all this tumult. And he said, look, it's better. He's saying in, in his fleshly mind, in his corrupt mind, he's saying, you know, it's better that we kill the one and to spare the rest. But he didn't realize that he was actually articulating the plan of God. Because in verse 51, the Bible says this, and he spake, the Bible says, and this spake he not of himself. So didn't, this didn't come from him. He said, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And look, when it comes to salvation, this is what we must understand. That salvation is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the rest. He took the punishment of the rest. He was sacrificed in order that the wrath of God may be abated. Now, here's what's interesting, though. Because if you keep your place there in John, we're going to come back to it. Go back to Jonah chapter 1. And I want you to notice again, verse number 12. Jonah chapter 1 and verse 12. Jonah basically preaches the gospel to these men, right? They said, what must we, you know, what shall we do? They said, what, you know, what must I do to be saved is basically what they're asking. And he said unto them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Now, I want you to notice what they do, how they respond to the message. Jonah says, if one is sacrificed, the rest can be saved. And you say, how did they respond to that? They, they, did they respond to that with thankfulness to Jonah? I mean, Jonah's a backslidden Christian. He's a backslidden believer. He's not doing right in his life. But he's not just this terrible, evil guy. I mean, at this point in his life, we're talking about physically the, the, the person Jonah, you know, he's basically telling the people, go ahead and throw me into the sea. Sacrifice me so that you guys don't die. I mean, that's an honorable, noble thing for him to do. Notice how they respond. They respond like humans often respond. Verse 13. Nevertheless, notice what it says. He just got done telling them, throw me into the sea and everything will be fine. Sacrifice the one for the rest. Verse 13, nevertheless, the man rode hard to bring it to land. I mean, isn't that how people respond today? I mean, we literally, we go out soul winning, we knock on a door, we ask people, do you know for sure if you died today that you're on your way to heaven? And people say, I'm not sure. I sure hope so. I'm trying. And we'll say, hey, the Bible says you can know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. The Bible says these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Do you mind if I show you from the Bible how you can know for sure? People are like, sure. And we go through and show them from the Bible that we're sinners and our sin has condemned us to hell and that Jesus died died on the cross to pay for our sin and that he's the only way that we can make it to heaven and we must put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and we ask people, do you believe that? Would you like to call upon him to save you? And many times people respond, well, I think I still have to live a good life. Well, I think I still have to go to church. Well, I think I still better, you know, get the sin out of my life and repent of all of my sins. And we tell people, look, look, it's good to go to church. It's good to read your Bible. It's good to quit smoking. It's good to do those things. But none of those things can save you. Salvation is the sacrifice of one for all. And they'll say, well, I think I'll just keep on rowing and trying to do it myself. I mean, isn't this what they do? Verse 13, nevertheless, the man rowed hard to bring it to land. They heard the gospel. They heard the message. They heard what had to happen in order to be saved. And they said, no, I think I'll just try it myself. I think I'll just try to save myself. Jonah says, I know how to save you. Sacrifice the one for the rest. No, we'll just, we'll, we'll just put more effort in. We'll just put more work in. We'll just try to do more. We don't think we need it. And look, listen to me. This is what people don't understand about salvation. If you could save yourself based on your own effort, then why did Jesus die? I mean, if you could be good enough, if you could repent enough, if you could go to church enough, if you could give enough money to the poor and live a good enough life, then why did he have to die? He had to die because you could not be good enough. He had to die because, as the mariners soon found out, notice verse 13, nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to land. But the mariners found this out, and everyone who's trying to save themselves will eventually find this out. It says, but they could not. You cannot fight against the wrath of God. You cannot work yourself out of the wrath of God. You cannot work yourself away from the wrath of God. You cannot get yourself out of trouble with God. It has and requires the sacrifice 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's just run some verses real quickly. Go to Romans. If you're there in, jo- uh, in John, keep your place in John. We're, we're going to come back there. But go with me to the book of Romans. John, Acts, Romans. John, Acts, Romans. And look, I, I really want all of you to re- really listen and understand to what is being said today. Because even in a church like ours, you could come here for years and years and not even really understand what salvation is. And look, and, and look, I'm not trying to put you in a bad spot or make you feel bad, but if somebody asks you the question, do you know for sure if you died today, are you on your way to heaven? And your response is, I'm not sure, then you're not saved, then you need to get saved and we can get you saved. But if your response is, oh, I'm sure, and then they follow you up with, well, what are you trusting in to get you to heaven? What, what gives you that confidence that you're on your way to heaven? And your answer is, I'm trying to do my best. I'm trying to follow Jesus. I'm trying to live a good life. I, I, I'm hoping that I'll be good enough. I'm just here to tell you, that's the wrong answer. You're, here's what you're saying. I'm trying to row my way out of this storm. And that's not what salvation is. And you will never, look, are you there in Romans 3? Look at verse 20. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Look, if your answer is anything less than faith in Jesus Christ, trust in Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he did for me on the cross, if your answer is anything less than that, then you need to get saved. Romans 3 and verse 20 says this, Therefore, therefore, notice what it says. And look, this sermon is not controversial, but yet 90% of Christians don't believe what I'm about to show you right now. Therefore, by the deeds, by the deeds, by the deed. What's a deed? A deed is an action. It is a performance. It is something we do. He says, by the deed of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. Can anybody, will anybody ever be justified in the sight of God by the deeds or the things that they do? And the answer is no. There shall no flesh be justified in sight. Why? For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Look, the law is not meant for, uh, to save us. The, all the law can do is condemn you. People think today, oh, well, if I keep the Ten Commandments, and if I do, do all the right things, and if I follow the checklist that my church gives me, whatever that checklist is, whether it's go to catechism and the confessional book, whether it's get baptized, whether it's speak in tongues, if, as long as I keep that checklist, then maybe I'll make it into heaven. Look, the Bible says that God gave us His law not to save you. All it can do is condemn you. All it can do is show you that you need to be saved. He says, for by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for, the, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Notice uh, verse 28, same chapter, Romans 3.28. Romans 3.28, Paul's been developing this thought through the book of uh, Romans. And in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28, he says this. He says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified. Notice that a man is justified, not by the deeds of the law. He's justified by faith. Notice, without the deeds of the law. Because you, what do people tell you today? You tell them it's, it, it's not works. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And here's what they'll tell you. They'll say, oh, well, it's me believing in Jesus and living a good life. It's me believing in Jesus and repenting of my sins. It's me believing in Jesus and going to church and reading the Bible and putting money on for me. And listen to me, none of that is wrong. All those things are good things. Going to church, reading the Bible, praying, putting money in the offering plate, repenting of your sin. Do all those things. But if you're doing those things to be saved, you're going to die and go to hell. Because it's not, you know, half Jesus, half me. He paid half of it. I paid the other half. The Bible says that we are justified by faith without the deeds of the law. It doesn't play into it. It plays no part in it. Romans 4, look at verse 5, just the next uh, 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 chapter over. Romans chapter 4 and verse 5. And people, they can't get away from it. They'll say, well, I don't believe in a work salvation, but you, but you better, you know, your life better match up, right? Not to be saved. I realize what I just said goes against what most religions teach today. But your life doesn't have to match up to be saved. There's only one man's life who had to match up for the rest of us to be saved, and it matched up perfectly. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. His sacrifice pays for all of our sins. Amen. Romans 4, 5 says, but to him that worketh not. Notice, it doesn't say to him that worketh a little bit. It doesn't say to him that worketh sometimes. Because here's what people say. Well, I just believe that if you get saved, there's going to be some work. 
Okay, well, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was the greatest theologian who ever lived, who wrote most of the New Testament, who, you know, was basically the, uh, other than the Lord Jesus Christ and John the Baptist, probably the greatest soul-winning evangelist, I mean, wrote, the Lord used him to write most of the New Testament, and he doesn't agree with you. Because he said, to him that worketh not, not to him that worketh a little bit, not to him that does somewhat. He says, this guy did nothing. This guy never went to church. This guy never read his Bible. This guy never did anything that we could constitute as work for God. He says, but to him that worketh not. But here's what he did do, but believeth. He had faith. On him that justifieth the ungodly. Notice what he says. His faith is counted for righteousness. Go to Romans 11 and verse 6. Romans chapter 11 and verse 6. Say, Pastor, you're beating a dead horse. This is a horse that needs to be beat. We need to stomp this thing into the ground until it turns into glue. You know, we need to just, you know, this is, we must earnestly contend for the faith. We must make sure that we understand and that people understand what salvation is. And today people tell you, oh, no, well, you, you, can't just, you can't just believe and do whatever you want. I mean, isn't that what people tell you? You can't just put your faith in Jesus and do whatever you want. You have to have the works. I mean, and they'll say, we're not saying the works save you, but it better be part of it. Oh, really? Well, Romans 11, look at verse 6. Romans 11 and verse 6, that says, and if by grace. Now, what, is, what does grace mean? You know, the theological definition of the word grace is unmerited favor. You know, but what does grace mean? Grace means you're getting something you don't deserve. Grace means free, right? Some of you have a grace period on the payments for your house or your rent, you know, the, car, the, the house you rent or the house you own. And what is that? What's that grace period? It's free time. They don't have to give you that. They just choose. That's what the word grace means. Here's what he says. For if by grace. Look, when you see the word grace in the Bible, just realize free. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Meaning it's free because it's a gift. He says, and if, it, he says, and if by grace. Here's what he's saying. If it's free then it is no more of works. Now, when you see the word works, just realize, what, what is, just, just think of this word, earning it, earned. If I earn it, if I'm working for it, then I'm earning it. If I'm working for it, then it's not free. Do you understand that? You don't go to work all week long and put in 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 hours to have your boss on a Friday say, hey, listen, I am so gracious and generous I want to give you this gift. Here's a gift that I'm giving you. You didn't earn it. This is a free gift that I, because I'm so gracious. Here's your paycheck. You'd be like, no, no, no. You're not giving me anything. I earned that because I worked for it. When you think of the word work, you think of earn. Here's what Paul's saying. When it comes to salvation, he says, if it be by grace, he says, if it is free, then it is no more work. Here's what he's saying. If it's free, you didn't earn it. Otherwise... Free is no more free. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. He said, look, if I'm earning it, then it's not free. And then just to make sure we get it, he says this. But here's the flip side. If it be of works, if it's something you earn, then it is no more grace. He said, if I have to earn it, then it's not free. If I have to earn it, then, then it's not being given to me because otherwise work is no more work. He, look, here's what he's saying. You can't have it both ways. And if you're one of these people who think, oh, it's faith in Jesus plus works. It's faith in Jesus, but I better live a good life. It's faith in Jesus, but I better follow Jesus and I better do right. And look, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. As a saved believer, you ought to do those things. But you say, Pastor Man, do you believe that somebody could be saved and never have any works, but they believe in Jesus and they'll go to heaven? Absolutely. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Word of God says. If it be by grace, then it is no more work. If it's free, then you can't earn it. And if you're earning it, then it's not free. Go back to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. But today you'll have people say, no, no, You know, we'll tell them, hey, the one died for the rest. The Jesus was sacrificed for the world. And they'll say, well, let me just try, to just try to row myself to shore. Let me just try to save myself. Notice verse 13 there. Jonah 1 and verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land. Here's what they found, but they could not. No matter how much they worked, no, how, no matter how much effort they put into it. And look, these religious people, these people we talk to and they're not saved. We're not saying they're bad people. They're sincere people. They're genuinely trying to be the best they can. 
But what they don't understand is that the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, if you want to work your way to heaven, you know the standard you've got to meet? It's God. You've got to be as good as God is. And because we're all sinners, we all come short of that. And these guys, they're trying, they're trying, but they eventually find, found out that they could not. And let me just say this. Go to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, if you got your, or find, find the first book in the New Testament. Let me say this. Every person on this earth will eventually understand clearly the doctrine of salvation. Every person that has ever lived will eventually come to the place one day where they fully understand that they could not save themselves. The question is, when do they come to that conclusion? Because the Bible says this, and as it is appointed unto men, once to die, and after this, the judgment. See, if a person can come to the place of understanding, I can't save myself. I'm not good enough to save myself. I'm never going to be able to roll myself out of this storm. I need somebody to save me. If they can understand that before they die, then they can be saved. But you know that every person in hell will eventually clearly understand the gospel, but by then it'll be too late. And what's interesting is that Jesus talked about this, Matthew 7. Look at verse 22. Jesus is referring back to what's known as the great white throne. This is the judgment of the unbelievers in the end times. And I want you to notice what these people say to to Jesus. Basically, they're at the throne of God. And he's basically asking them or, the, you know, they're, they're putting their answer, right? They're, they're, they're basically being asked by Jesus, you know, do you know for sure if that's how you're way to heaven? What are you trusting in? Why should I let you into heaven? And this is what they said. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name's done many wonderful works. And by the way, when we go soul winning people, sometimes they'll mock at us and say, oh, you guys go soul winning, you ask all these questions. You know, when you ask questions, it helps you understand what people believe. Because look, if I was standing before the glorified Jesus Christ, hundreds of thousands of people before me just got thrown into hell. And obviously, I would never be at the great white throne. If you're a believer, you'll never be at the great white throne. But just hypothetically, if I were there and Jesus said, why should I let you into heaven? Why should I not cast you into hell? Why should, should, should you be allowed to spend eternity in heaven? You think I'm going to say, well, have we not prophesied in thy name? I mean, Jesus, all, all those sermons I preached, you know, I mean, I preached Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. You think that's what I'm going to say? Have we not cast out devils? Have we? Look, at that point, you know what I'm saying? You need to let me into heaven because I put my faith in you. Because I called upon you for salvation. Because you promised to forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. See, when you ask people these questions, it reveals what they are trusting in their heart. And listen to me. If we asked you the question, what are you trusting in to go to heaven? And your answer is, well, I'm trying to live a good life. Well, I'm going to church. Well, I'm following Jesus. Wrong answer. Because these people will say, did we not prophesy in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils. And in thy name have done many wonderful. Look, these people weren't bad people. They were hard-working religious people in thy name have done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Notice, it's not that these people were saved and lost it. It's not, I used to know you. He said, I never knew you. He said, you were never saved. Because listen to me, anybody who's trusting their life to get them to heaven is not saved, period. If it be of grace, then it is no more works. If it's work, then it is no more grace. If there's anything in you that's saying, well, I better just keep on with it. I better just never quit. I better just always. Then you were never saved. I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice it says, ye that work iniquity. They were doing good things. Yeah, but they were still sinners. See, salvation is this, that the one gave himself for the rest. That the one died for the rest. Not that I'm going to pay off my debt by trying to live a good life. Go back to Jonah. Jonah chapter 1. Let me give you an illustration. I sometimes use this out soul winning. But I, I, I'll tell people like, hey, listen, what if I robbed a bank? I mean, what if I robbed a bank, I spend all the money, it's all gone, you know, and then I get arrested. 
you know, they find me, they've got proof, they've got eyewitnesses, they have me on camera, I'm guilty, I robbed the bank. And I'm standing before the judge and I say to the judge, now listen, judge, from now on, I'm going to not rob banks anymore. In fact, I'm, I'm going to help little old ladies cross the street. And I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, uh, volunteer at, uh, you know, shelters. And I'm, I'm just anything I can think of that people would constitute as a good thing. I'm going to do those things. You think that judge is going to look at me and say, okay, you're, you're good to go. On your way. No. Why not? Because I already robbed the bank. I'm already guilty. And nothing that I do after that. No matter how many times I show up to the bank and deposit money and don't steal from them, it's not going to take away the fact that I've already robbed the bank. And what people don't understand, you're already a sinner. Right. Oh, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to repent of my sins. I'm going to quit drinking. I'm going to you know, stop doing this and stop doing that. I'm going to start going to church. You're already a sinner. You're already condemned. And nothing you can do is going to, is this why salvation, is going to remove that from you. This is why salvation is a sacrifice. That Jesus made. So in the story, we see, number one, the sacrifice of Christ. One had to be sacrificed for the rest. But we see that the rest continue to try to work on, continue to try to save themselves. But they realize, and everyone will one day realize, that you cannot, that they could not, that you cannot save yourself. But I want you to notice a second doctrinal lesson we learned from the story of Jonah. Because remember, it was the sign of the prophet Jonah. Look at verse, verse 4. Wherefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, once they realized, I can't save myself. This is, I, we can't do it. We, we can't do it. Therefore, they cried unto the Lord and said, we beseech thee, O Lord, we beseech thee, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not upon us innocent blood for, uh, for thou, O Lord, has done as it hath pleased thee. Verse 15. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. Notice the last part of verse 15. And the sea ceased from her raging. The sea ceased from her raging. That, that must have been a sight to see. I mean, think about it. These, these, are, these guys are not just amateurs out on the, on the Mediterranean Sea here. These are professional sailors, mariners. They do this for a living. And look, when the guys who do it for a living are scared, you know you're in trouble. I mean, this was a bad storm. When the guys, when, they, when they're thinking to themselves, let's throw the merchandise off the boat. We're going to get back home and have a whole lot of people mad at us. We're going to owe them this money. This trip is not going to yield us a profit. In fact, we're going to go into debt, but we're just going to throw this off the boat because we're not even going to survive. When these guys are worried and scared, when they're thinking the ship, it, look, it was a bad storm. And when Jonah said, throw me out and it'll be fine. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. They keep rowing. These are professional mariners, professional sailors. They say, we, we've gone through storms before. We can save ourselves. And they get to the place where they say, this storm is so bad. We're going to actually throw this man off the ship to save ourselves. And the Bible says, when Jonah hit the water, the storm ceased. I mean, it goes from, from water and turmoil and storms and scaring, uh, being scared and being frightened, and he hits the water, and it's calm. That must have been a scary sight. I mean, the Bible says that they were frightened at that point. They were more scared about the effect. You say, what, what can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn from that. Not only is salvation the sacrifice of Christ, but salvation is the satisfying of Christ. See, when the sacrifice was made, when Jonah was made, the wrath of God was abated. It was done. The storm ceased. It was clear sailing from there. Go to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. You know, in the Christ, for, 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 for us, it's the same way. The Bible says that those who don't believe on Christ, who have not trusted in Christ, that the wrath of God abideth on them. But let me tell you something. As soon as you receive the gift of salvation, as soon as you call upon Jesus to save you, as soon as you accept his sacrifice for you, the wrath of God is completely abated. It's just clear sailing from there. The wrath of God is gone. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 2. 1 John chapter 2, if you start at the end of the Bible, book of Revelation and head backwards, you have the book of Jude, 3rd uh, and 2nd John, and then the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, notice verse 2. The Bible says this, And he, that's Jesus, is the, I want you to notice this word. In fact, you got to underline this in your Bible or circle it. The propitiation for our sins. 
The word propitiation means the appeasement. It means to pacify. See, I owed a debt I could not pay. And Jesus paid that debt. And as soon as the sacrifice was accepted, as soon as the payment was made, he appeased my debt. He appeased the wrath of God. He pacified. As soon as Jonah lands in the, in the storm, the storm's gone. And you know what? As soon as I called upon Jesus to save me, the wrath of God was gone. And the, 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 the judgment of God and the chastisement, he says he is the propitiation for our sins. Notice this. And not for ours only, but for also for the sins of the whole world. He's a sacrifice uh, for the entire world. Notice there, you're in 1 John 2. Go to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. 1 John 4, 10 says, says this. Here in his love. Here in his love. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us. Notice what it says. And sent his son to be the propitiation, the appeasement, the pacifying for our sins. See, salvation is not just the sacrifice, but it is the satisfaction of God. It's the fact that payment was made. That's why the Bible often refers to salvation as redemption. Our, the redemption, we were purchased. That's why the Bible says that we were purchased through Jesus Christ, right? Because he paid the debt. It's done. Go to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. If you start at the center of the Bible, you'll more than likely be in the book of Psalms. After Psalms, you got Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and then the book of Isaiah. And do me a favor, when you get to Isaiah, keep a ribbon or a bookmark there or a bulletin there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. You should have your place in Jonah, John, and Isaiah 53, all right? Go to Isaiah 53. But here's what you need to understand. When Jesus saves you, he saves you of all your sins. They're all gone. It's all done. It doesn't say that they threw Jonah in and then the storm ceased to the place where they could kind of just, you know, get themselves back home. No, it was done. It was gone. And look, this, you say, well, what's the, what's the doctrinal importance here? Here's the doctrinal importance. Because today people have this idea. They think, well, if I believe on Jesus, he'll forgive me all my, of all my sins. But if later on in my life, if I quit on God, if I quit following God, if I go back to drugs or if I go back to alcohol, if I go back to whatever I was doing before, then he's going to take away my salvation. But here's the thing. He satisfied all your sins, past, present, and future. They're all paid for. You say, even the future ones? Let me let you in on a secret. When Jesus died on the cross for your sins, all of your sins were in the future. And he was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Look, it's not just that he sacrificed himself for our sins. It's that when he sacrificed himself, he paid all of it. It's all done. It's all gone. You say, Pastor Man, does that mean that I can go out and, and, and live a worldly lifestyle and not lose my salvation? That's exactly what that means. Now, let me say this. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about where you spend eternity, heaven or hell. You still, have to spend the, you still have to live the rest of this life here on earth. And the Bible does say, be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. The Bible does say, you know, be not weary uh, uh, of the chastisement of God. He's, you know, my son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction, for whom the Lord loveth, he corrected, even as a father, the son in whom he delighted. I'm not telling you that you can go around robbing banks, killing people, and nothing's going to happen to you. Because on this earth, you do reap what you sow. On this earth, God does chastise his children. Why? Because you're a child of God. You got born again into the family of God. When you got saved, you became a son of God. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. And look, my sons, my children, I've got, the Lord has blessed us with six children. And my children, they were born into my family. There's no, nothing they did. There's no effort they put in to be born. You know who put all the effort in? Mama. (laughs) I've been there for six of them. It's a lot of work. She put in the effort. They were just, they were just, uh, they went along for the ride. They got born. And you know what? Nothing will ever change that. You know, those kids will be my kids for all of eternity. They'll be my children. For, for, for all of eternity, they'll be the kids that the Lord gave me, that the Lord gave my, my wife, that, that we brought into this world. Now, listen, listen. Because this is where people get confused with salvation. 
When you got saved, you became a child of God. Nothing will ever change that. But my kids can have a good relationship or a bad relationship with their father. If they obey and they're respectful and they do what we've told them to do, then we're going to have a good relationship and bless them and go out to ice cream and do whatever. But look, if I tell my kids, go clean your room, and they go play in the backyard, you think we're going out to ice cream? I'm going out to ice cream. (laughs) You know, they're going to get a spanking. Now look, when my kids disobey me, do I just throw them out of the house? Get out of there! You're not my kids anymore. No, you know what? I discipline them. Why? Because I love them. Because they're my children. Because I want to help correct them and make sure that they're making right decisions. And on this earth, God disciplines his children. But he doesn't throw you out of the family and send you to hell. What kind of sick, tormented father is that? You do wrong, so he's going to send you to hell? I mean, you wouldn't do that. The Bible says that we, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto our children. How much more our heavenly father? Let me let you in on a secret. He's a much better father than you are. He's a much better parent than you are. If you want to send your kids to hell, why would he? We see that he, his, his, his sacrifice satisfied. It satisfied the wrath of God. Isaiah 53, notice what he says. He says, surely he hath, this is a prophecy, by the way. 700 years before Christ, this is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was, notice, wounded for our transgression. He was, notice, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. This is what salvation is. Look, th- these are the choices. You let Jesus pay for your sins or you pay for your sins. How do I pay for my sins? You die and go to hell for all eternity. You want to do that? Well, then you, then you quit trying to work your way to heaven and you just put your trust in him because he already paid the penalty. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, notice, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of the iniquity of all mankind. He paid for all of it. Verse 8, he was taken from prison in judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he is cut off of the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people was he stricken. See, not only was he the sacrifice, not only was he the sacrifice for all, but he was the satisfaction for all. When he paid for my sins, he paid in full. They're all gone. Gone, gone, my sins are gone. As the song says. Keep your, keep your finger there, Isaiah 53. Go back to Jonah chapter 1. Let me show you one, one more thing here. Not only was the sacrifice, not, not only did the sacrifice satisfy the wrath of God, but I want you to notice something else. The sacrifice pleased the Lord. Notice what the mariners said at the end of verse 14. Notice what they said. For thou, O Lord, has done as it pleased thee. The mariners said, if we have to throw Jonah off the, off the boat in order for to be saved, then you know what, God? That's your plan, and if that's what pleases you, then we're just going to do what has pleased thee. Here's what's interesting. The same wording is used about Jesus in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 10. Go back to Isaiah 53, verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Talking about Jesus. It was a pleasing sacrifice. You say, why was it pleasing? Here's why it was pleasing. And look, all of this is connected. I I wish I had the the talent and the skills to communicate the things that need to be communicated at this point. All of this is connected. The doctrine of the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh, is important. You say, why? Because the only way that a man could be pleasing to God is if he was God. You say, you know, look, I love my wife and my children dearly. And And if my children were going to be sent to hell... And I, because I love them so much, I went to God and I said, God, I don't want my kids to go to hell. I don't want my wife to go to hell. I'd like to go to hell in their place. I'd like to make the payment that they deserve. Lord, you know, would you send me to hell in their place? You know what God would say? No. You say, why? Because I've got my own sins to pay for. See, I'm not a pleasing sacrifice. I can't go in their place. I've got to go in my place. Jesus came to this earth as the sinless Lamb of God. 
He came to this earth. See, when he died on the cross, he did not die to pay for his own sins because he had no sins. He died to pay for our sins. The reason he was able to take our place is because he had no sin. And he was a pleasing sacrifice. It pleased the Lord. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Go, go back to, he replaced in Isaiah 53. We're going to come right back to it. Go back to Jonah chapter 3. Let me give you the third, the third point. We'll be done. I said, number one, we see the sacrifice of Christ in the story of Jonah, where he's thrown off the boat. One is sacrificed for the rest. And we saw the satisfaction of Christ in the story of Jonah. When he hit the ocean, when he hit the storm, the storm ceased. And when you call upon Jesus, the wrath of God is abated. But thirdly, I'd like you to notice that we picture here, we see the prophecy of the suffering of Christ. Notice what the Bible says. Look at Jonah 1 and verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifices unto the Lord and made vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish, notice what it says, three days and three nights. He was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You don't have to go there. You've already seen it uh, today, but let me just read it to you again. Matthew 12, 39, remember, but he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and there shall no sign be given it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus said in the same way that Jonah was in the belly for three days and three nights, the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. I want you to notice just some, a few things real quickly. Uh, go, in Jonah chapter Chapter 2. I want you to notice that Jonah prophesied about suffering in hell. Now, Jonah was not in hell, but Jonah was a prophet. And, he, and we see his prophecy in chapter 2. It comes in the form of a prayer. Look at verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord, his God, out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. I want you to notice that Jonah is not actually in hell. And in this prophecy, and here's what you need to understand. When we study prophecy, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, you know, all those books, is that the prophecies are often intermingled between what the prophet is experiencing at that point and what's going to happen in the future. That's where a lot of people get messed up with prophecy. They want to take things that are actually happening to Ezekiel and say that's going to happen in future events and take things that are going to happen in future events and say that already happened. But here, Jonah, there's, there's, there's an intermingling here. Notice, he was not literally in hell. Look at verse 3. For thou hast cast me into the deep. Okay, where is he? In the water. In the midst of the seas. He said, you took me out into the middle of the ocean, you cast me into the deep, and the floods compassed me about, surrounded me. All thy billows and thy waves passed over me. He says, I'm underwater. Then said I, I am cast off thy sight, yet I will look again toward the holy temple. Verse 5, notice what he says, the waters compass me about. He said, I'm surrounded by water, even the soul, the depths close me round about. He said, I'm deep in the water. Notice what he says, the weeds were wrapped about my head. You know, Jonah is physically underwater in the whale's belly. But I want you to notice that he prophesied as though he was in hell. Notice verse 10 again. And it said, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Notice what he says. Out of the belly of hell. Now, was Jonah in the belly of hell? No. He was in the belly of the whale. But he's prophesying about something that thousands of years later, Jesus is going to say, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You say, well, what did Jesus mean by that? Well, he said it's going to be like Jonah, so what was Jonah saying? And Jonah said, out of the belly of hell, cried I. Look at verse 4. Then said I, I am cast out of thy sight. Now, was Jonah out of the sight of God? We learned this last week. You can run from God, but you can't outrun God. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God knows everything. He knows where you are. But you know that Jesus was cast out of the sight of the Father when he took the sins of mankind. You don't have to turn there. Matthew 27, 46. And I know, I, I realize this is kind of a doctrinal sermon, and I warned you about that. Next week, we're going to get back into something real practical out of Jonah. But Matthew 27, verse 46. You don't turn there. I'll read this to you. And, now, and about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that's what Jonah said. He said, he said I cried out of the belly of hell. I am cast out of thy sight. Look at verse 6, Jonah chapter 2, verse 6. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. Was Jonah literally at the bottoms of the mountains? No. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Was Jonah 
down in the foundation of the earth where the metals and all those things are, and was he there forever? Yet thou hast brought up my life from corruption. He said, what is all this talking about? What is all this talking about? Go to Acts chapter 2. We're almost done. From, from John, you got the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Let me teach you this real quickly. It's something that many people today don't believe, but it's in the Bible. And you know what? As Bible-believing Baptists, the Bible is our boss. If the Bible says it, we believe it, period. Doesn't matter what anybody else says. Doesn't matter what anybody else teaches. Doesn't matter what, uh, what, what commentaries say or other teachers say. If the Bible says it, that's what we believe. And here's what's interesting. You say, why would God, why would Jesus tell us that Jonah was going to serve as a sign? The same amount of time that Jonah was in the belly of the whale is the same amount of time that he was going to be in the heart of the earth. And then you go to Jonah, and Jonah's acting like he's in hell. You say, what's the connection? Here's the connection. Let me let you in on a little secret. Jesus went to hell to pay for your sins. Today, people, they don't believe that. Ah, there's no way Jesus went to hell. If the Bible said it, would you believe it? Acts 2, verse 31. Notice what he says. Acts 2, 31. He's seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. You say, oh, I've got, my, my version of the Bible says that uh, his soul was not left in Hades. I, I don't know what the Hades you're talking about. <laughs> I don't speak Greek. Neither do you. But you want to know how that word is translated all throughout the Bible? Hell. Oh, no, it was this place. It's, a, you know, it's like this paradise in the middle of the earth. There's this nice part of hell. No, it's hell. Everywhere else in the Bible, it's hell. And if your Bible says Hades, you've got to ask yourself, why did they change it there? Are they trying to mess with a key doctrine of salvation? And he's seeing this before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. And by the way, Jonah 2.6, yet hast thou brought, me, brought up my life from corruption? Brought up my life, referring to the resurrection, from corruption. The Bible says, neither did his flesh did see corruption. This, uh, he's seeing this before speak of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. Verse 32, this Jesus hath God raised up, whereon we, are, uh, we all are witnesses. And look, it, doesn't it make sense? If I have to die and go to hell to pay for my sins... And Jesus was going to pay for my sins, then wouldn't he have to die and go to hell to pay for my sins? And that's what Jesus did. He went to hell to pay for my sins. Here's what's interesting. Jonah, Jonah, notice verse 27, real quickly. Acts 2, 27. Because thou wilt not leave my soul. Notice that word soul in hell. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Go back to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. In verse 6, he says this. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, the earth with her bars was about me. Notice what he says, forever. Forever. Now, was Jonah in the belly of the well forever? No, he was there for three days and three nights. Was Jesus in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights? No, oh, forever? No, he was there for three days and three nights. But the Bible says that he suffered eternity. He suffered an eternal punishment in those three days and three nights. You say, well, how did, how did that happen? I, look, I don't know. We'll have to ask God when we get to heaven. But that's what the Bible says. He suffered your eternal payment. He says, forever. Go back to Isaiah 53, verse 7. Let me show you one more thing. We'll, we'll, we'll be done. Isaiah 53. I got, you know, we'll, we'll be done with these points. I, I want to show you a couple things in the conclusion. Isaiah 53, look at verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his, notice this word, soul an offering for sin. See, Isaiah tells us that it wasn't his body that was made an offering for sin. It was his soul that was made an offering for sin. Well, where did his soul go? He, seeing this, before spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. And it says that his soul was made a sacrifice for sin. Study sacrifices in the Bible. Remember when we preached through the book of Leviticus on Wednesday night, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the book of Leviticus? Remember, we learned about all the different sacrifices in the Bible. You know what they all had in common? They were all burned. They were all placed on fire. They were burnt up. They were cooked up. They were whatever. They all had a common denominator, fire. Why? Because they all pictured the fact that Jesus would not only die on the cross for our sins as the one human sacrifice and satisfy the wrath of God, but that his soul would actually go down to hell and suffer 
and eternity is worth in the three days and three nights. And that's what Jonah prophesied. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches. And by the way, that's why this teaching coming out of, you know, so-called Baptists today that we're going to, you know, if you're not a good Christian, you're going to spend some time in the lake of fire during the millennial reign. This is why that is so ridiculous. If Jesus went to hell for my sins, you know why he did that? So I wouldn't have to spend one minute in hell. He, he suffered hell. He was the sacrifice for my sin. He paid for all of it. He satisfied it all. Amen. Go back to Jonah. Let me show you. Let me show you one last a couple more things, and we'll be done. Just something real quickly. You say, Pastor Jimenez, that's interesting. I mean, you doctrinally prove that salvation is not of works. You say, what, what do you want to take away from the sermon? Here's what I want you to take away from the sermon. Please listen. If you have not listened to anything I've said, just listen right now, okay? Salvation is not of works. You don't earn it. It's not you adding anything to it. It's a free gift. He paid for it on the cross, and all we have to do is by faith receive it. How do you receive it? By calling upon him to save you. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You don't have to earn it. It's free. He paid for it. And once you have it, you'll never lose it. He'll never take it away. Amen. And look, if you believe, I, I believe you can lose your salvation, then you're trusting in, your, in a work salvation. You're trusting in yourself. Like, if I'm saved as long as I don't quit church, if I'm saved as long as I don't commit adultery, if I'm saved as long as I don't walk away from God, if I'm saved as long as I don't commit suicide, then I'm saved as long as I! And that means I'm trusting in I. But if I'm saved, period, because he paid for all my sins, then that is a trust in Jesus Christ, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does it mean to believe? It means to trust. It doesn't mean you believe that he existed. The devils believe in God and tremble. It means that you're trusting in him, that your confidence is in his payment for your sin on the cross. So look, you say, what, what do we learn? It's not of works. You can't lose it. He satisfied all of it. He paid all of it. And he did that by suffering for us. Now listen, Christian, the one who's been dozing off and saying, I already know all this, I already hear all this. Here's a question I have for you. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? I mean, do you understand that the God of the universe became a man lived a sinless life, died on the cross, went to hell for three days and three nights, suffered hell, your hell, suffered your punishment for your sin. And you know what we do? We're just indifferent. Oh, Pastor, you know, I hope next week's sermon is a little better than this. We just don't care. We're a bunch of Jonas. You know what Jonah was doing? Look at what Jonah was doing. Jonah chapter 1. Notice verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid. And cried every man unto his God, and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it off them. But Jonah, the one man who knew the true and living God, but Jonah, the one man who was saved on that ship, but Jonah, the one man who had the answers they were looking for, looking for, but Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. You may be the only person that understands salvation at your workplace. You may be the only person in your entire family who understands that salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. And once you have it, you can never lose it. You may be the only person on that block. You may be the only person in that apartment complex. You may be the only person that your neighbors and co-workers and associates know. You may be the only person on that boat that knows. And you know what most Christians are doing? They're sleeping. They just don't care. It's time to wake up. Hey, Pastor Mendes, why, why, is, why is there going to be a group of 20 to 30 you know, soul winners gathered together at 2 p.m. this afternoon to go out into the community and preach the gospel? Why would you guys do that? You know why we would do that? Because we may be the only ones that have the gospel message in this community. And you say, oh, well, you don't think there's other people that are saved? I'm just saying, who's out there preaching it? The Jehovah's Witnesses? Because they don't have the gospel. They don't believe Jesus is God. 
the Mormons, because they don't have the gospel, they, don't, they, they believe Jesus is one of a thousand gods. Who's out there preaching the gospel? You say, what do we do? Wake up! Wake up and realize that we've got this great message, we've got this great gospel, and you say, oh, it's young, oh, it's boring, oh, I've heard it. But there's somebody out there who has not. You need to wake up. You need to wake up. Because Jonah was just asleep. When they needed him the most, and look, this is what the Bible says, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these stories, these examples and examples that you've given us. And Lord, we thank you. I I pray that we would never get tired of the message of salvation. And I realize that many and most people in this room understand salvation and understand it clearly. But I pray you'd help us to take opportunities every once in a while to just remember and to worship you for the great sacrifice you made for me. To send your son to die on the cross. Lord, I pray you'd help us to wake up to realize that there are people out there who don't know these things. These basic foundational principles. Some people don't know it. And they're going to die and go to hell because of it. And Lord, I pray if there's somebody in this room who's not saved. There's somebody in this room who just hasn't maybe understood it and comprehended it and just is a little confused. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to change their mind. To acknowledge what salvation truly is. That it is believing and trusting in Jesus, not based on my, on my personal works, and that they would call upon you to save them. Lord, I pray that they need someone to talk to them. If they need somebody to explain to them even further that they would not leave here today without stopping somebody, at talking to me, talking to uh, the staff, or my wife, or the ushers, whatever, and saying, can somebody please explain this to me? I want to be saved. Lord, I do thank you for a place where we can clearly learn the gospel. Thank you for the stories where we can clearly see it represented as a sign of the prophet Jonas. We love you. We thank you for salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.